Well, my name is Adam. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm the lead pastor here, and it is great to have you with us today. Before we uh, dive into this passage of Scripture, I just wanted to remind you that in a few weeks' time, on Sunday the 18th of July, we will be celebrating 30 years of ministry and church life on this campus. We're going to be looking back at all that God has done among and through us with grateful, thankful hearts. And we're also going to look ahead and ask God to do even more among us and through us. In fact, on that Sunday, we'll kick off a three-week sermon series, which we've called The Next 30. And we're going to be sharing our mission and our values, where we believe God is leading us into the future, who He's calling us to become, because the mission of God is not over yet. There's more good for us to do. There's more people for us to reach. And we don't want to be on the sidelines. We want to be engaged joyfully, sacrificially for the glory of God. So put that date in your diary, Sunday, 18th of July. We would love to see you there. Today, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. For the last two months, we have been on a journey exploring the story of the early church how the church was born, how it spread to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is what Acts is all about. The power of God upon the people of God for the mission of God. And the story, as we've seen it so far, has been pretty amazing. In this part of the series, we're only looking at chapters 1 to 7. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Acts has 28 chapters in it. So we'll come back to the rest of the story early next year. But what we've seen in these opening uh, six or seven chapters so far has been amazing. Jesus has been raised and returned to heaven. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all believers. The Word of God has spread and the church of God has grown. It's been an amazing story. But what we've also seen is that it hasn't just been smooth sailing. The church has faced opposition from those outside. The apostles, the leaders of the early church, they have been threatened, arrested, and flogged. But there's also been dangers that the church have faced from within. Do you remember the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, which threatened to corrupt the witness of the church, which is why God dealt with them so decisively? Well, today, in the passage that we're looking at in Acts chapter 6, we see another danger that the early church was facing. And it wasn't opposition or persecution, and it wasn't corruption. It was the danger of disunity. It was the danger of division. In these few verses, we see the first recorded instance of a church fight. Now, of course, it's true, isn't it, that throughout history, the, the church has gone through many massive disagreements. The church has endured huge fights. The church has fought over things like the divinity of Jesus. Is Jesus truly God? The authority of Scripture. The nature of salvation. How is a person saved? Issues like baptism and Lord's Supper. There have been serious church splits over these issues. And often for good reason, because these are really important issues. But there's also been other church fights throughout history that have been about, let's say, less important issues. Things like the color of the carpet, the type of seats that we buy, 
the type of songs that we sing, the temperature of the air conditioning, the type of coffee beans we serve, the dress code, especially for those on the platform. In fact, I heard uh, this week, uh, apparently in one church, a petition was started to force all church staff to be clean shaven. Now, we'd only have Nathaniel and the ladies left. I heard about another church where someone objected to the term potluck, you know, potluck lunch. They thought it should be called pot blessing instead. And it caused a fight. I mean, the truth is churches and church people, they disagree over all different kinds of things. Some of them really important, really necessary. Others of them, not so much. And if you're not a Christian and if you're with us today, maybe this is one of the things that has put you off church. Maybe this is one of the reasons you've avoided church because you you look and and it seems like Christians just can't seem to get along. And if that's you, I understand. It's not attractive or compelling when Christians fight. And yet at another level, it's understandable because when you put a bunch of recovering sinners together, we're going to bump up against one another occasionally. And the important thing then becomes, well, how do we deal with the issue? How do we handle it? How do we respond to it? Well, today in Acts chapter 6, we see the early church, they respond well to the first church fight. They deal with it wisely. And we're going to learn some important lessons from them, not just about how to resolve conflict, but also about keeping first things first in the church about focusing on those things that really, truly matter. So let's have a look at it together. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, and we see that this passage really breaks down into three main scenes. We see, number one, the problem in verse 1, the proposal in verses 2 to 6, and then the payoff in verse 7. Now, that's just peak preaching right there, isn't it? Three-point sermon, three-piece. That's, I feel like I can't go any higher. Let's begin, the problem, verse one. Now the passage actually begins with good news. The church is growing. Look at verse one. The number of disciples was increasing. So more people are being added to the church. But more people means more complexity. And it seems that this growth had actually created a problem. There was a complaint that was being made. We see it in the rest of verse one. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now remember earlier in the story in chapter 2 and chapter 4, people were selling their possessions. They were getting rid of their stuff and then they were giving the money to the apostles to give out to those who were in need. Well here we see an example of that in action. The money is being used by the apostles to buy food for the widows in the church community. But it seems there was a problem with this distribution of food. There was one particular group that was missing out. Now, just like within our church today, within the early church, there were different cultural groups. And we're introduced to two of them here in this passage. First, there were the Hebraic Jews. These were Jewish Christians and natives of Palestine. They spoke largely Aramaic. They were the home team. They are the insiders. 
But then, then you have the Hellenistic Jews. Now, they're also Jewish Christians, but they have come from outside of Palestine. They come from a Greek background and they speak the Greek language. They're the outsiders. They're the immigrants. And it seems there was tension between these two groups. When it came to time to hand out the food, the Greek widows were missing out. They're being neglected. They're being overlooked. And so the question is, why? Why were the Greek widows being overlooked? Was this a deliberate ploy from the Hebraic Jews to favor their widows? Possibly, but we're not really told. It seems more likely that this was a result of poor administration. They didn't have the right systems in place. The growth had, had put a, too big a demand on them. And the result was that the Greek widows fell through the cracks, possibly because of the language barrier. And so the Greek Jews began to complain, and the complaint made its way back to the apostles. And so the question becomes, what are they going to do about it? How are they going to respond? Now, they could have responded in a number of different ways. They could have got defensive. A problem? We're a growing church. Look how many people are joining us. Stop complaining. They, they could have tried to silence the doubters, the complainers. Just, just be grateful that you're getting some food. Just be grateful that this is on offer. They could have stepped in themselves. Get out of the way. We'll do it. We'll sort it out. But that's not what they do. They respond in a way that is far more wise. And it brings us to the second scene in this passage, which is the proposal. And we see their proposal in verses 2 to 6. Look what we read there in verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, this sounds a little bit elitist, doesn't it? As if these apostles spend all their time locked away in their study with their rich mahogany and leather-bound books and long blacks, and they couldn't possibly descend to hand out loaves of bread. Sounds elitist, but that's not what they're saying at all. See, this is not a matter of superiority, which task is better or worse. This is a matter of priority. Which task is best? Which task is mine to do? What have I been called by God to do? See, when the apostles say it would not be right for us, they're not saying it would be beneath us. They're saying it would not be pleasing to God because God has called us and set us apart for prayer and the ministry of the word. This is what God has set us apart to do and to neglect it by doing something else, it would not be pleasing to God. Think about it this way. Imagine there is a serious car crash. You are the first on the scene and so you call the ambulance and now you try to do what you can while you're waiting for the ambulance to arrive, but really you're just hoping for the paramedics to come to, to sort the situation out. Now imagine when the ambulance arrives, the paramedic gets out and begins to sweep up the glass. The other paramedic begins to direct the traffic. Now they're good things, they're things that need to happen, but they're not what the paramedic should be doing. The paramedics have been called and equipped and trained to administer first aid. And that should be their priority. And see, the apostles, they have been called and equipped and trained to preach the word of God. 
and it should be their priority. For them to do something else, even something good like caring for widows, it would be a disservice to the church and it would be dishonoring to God. See, this situation is not a matter, a case of good or bad. This is a matter of good and best. To serve widows is good, very good. But for the apostles, it had the potential to take them away from the word of God, which for them is best. You know, early in my ministry career, I wrote down on a post-it note, God has called me to dot, dot, dot. And then I wrote five bullet points underneath it. Because there are so many good things that you can do in ministry. But it's important then to define the best things. And so I wrote down on those, uh, those five bullet points. Number one, love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love Molly, my wife, as Christ loved the church. Number three, preach and teach the Bible. Number four, shepherd and protect the church. And number five, equip and raise up leaders. Now, there are countless things to do in ministry. And obviously, these aren't the only things that I do. And I wouldn't even say I do all of these things particularly well. But these are the things I've identified as the best things the things I need to devote my time and energy and attention to. And the question is, what about you? What has God called you to devote yourself to? What is good and best for you? Now, this is an important question because if your life is anything like mine, you have a lot of different balls in the air. You feel like you're juggling a whole lot of different things. I mean, you've got the career ball if you're still working. Am I a good employee? Am I a good boss? Am I showing up on time? Am I taking care of people? If you're studying, you've got that ball in the air. Am I doing the readings? Am I attending classes? Am I handing my assessment in on time? You've got the family ball. Am I giving enough time and attention to my spouse? Am I there for my kids or my grandkids? Am I helping them? Am I disciplining them? Am I visiting my parents? Am I calling my parents? You got the health ball. Am I exercising? Am I eating well? Am I using my expensive gym membership? You got the friendship ball. Am I giving time to my friends? Am I replying to their messages? Am I responding to their calls? Am I saying happy birthday to them on Facebook just so they know that I care? Then you got the church ball. Am I showing up? Am I encouraging others? Am I in a growth group? Am I giving? Am I serving? Then you got the relationship with God ball. Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I being obedient? We have all these different balls in the air, and that list isn't even exhaustive. I mean, we could add more. It's no wonder we can sometimes feel overwhelmed. We're trying to juggle everything. We're trying to keep everything together. We're trying to keep things going. And this is why it's important for us at times in life to step back and to ask ourselves, what is good and what is best? What should I prioritize? And it might be easy, there'll be difficult decisions to make, but it's important and it's necessary. And the apostles, they understood this tension. Yes, they were called by God to lead this movement, 
They were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They were empowered by the Spirit. They're filled with boldness. They're filled with courage. But they were also human. They had limitations. They had weaknesses. They had drawbacks. They could only be in one place at one time. They could only talk to one person at a time. And they had the humility and the wisdom to recognize this. And we see this in their proposal to the church. Look at what we see, verses 3 to 4. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. They delegate the responsibility. They hand over this responsibility to seven others from among the church. But not just to anyone who wants the gig, to those who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. To those who are obviously believers, they obviously trust in Jesus, they obviously display the fruit of the Spirit. And to those who are full of wisdom, they have a right view of God, they make good decisions, they're mature, they're stable, they're growing. Notice that this is more about character than competency. This is more about godliness than than greatness. They're looking for mature, growing, faithful people to serve alongside them in the church. And this really is the beauty of the body at work. This is the blessing of belonging to a body of people with many different gifts and many different abilities. The apostles don't have to do everything. There are others who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. There are others who are gifted to serve in this way. And the apostles delegate the responsibility to them. And you know, this is actually a glimpse into what a church leader is supposed to be doing. Ephesians 4 says that the role of a pastor is this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now notice, I love this verse because it doesn't say the role of a pastor is to do all of the ministry. It says the role of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to be involved in God's mission, to be part of what God is doing. To use an American sports analogy, a a pastor is not like the quarterback that, that throws all the plays. A pastor is more like a coach on the sideline calling the place, encouraging everyone to get involved, to be part of God's mission and God's work. And this is exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 6. The apostles delegate this responsibility. They get others involved in the work of ministry. And we see in verse 5 that this proposal pleased the church. And they then choose seven men with funny-sounding names, and they commission these men to care for the widows. Now, I won't read the names out again, but we don't really know a whole lot about these seven men. We'll meet Stephen again next week. He will give one of the, or the longest sermon that is recorded in Acts. And it's a sermon that leads to his execution. We'll also meet Philip in chapter eight. But uh, the other guys, we don't know a whole lot about, but what we do know about them is really important. All of these seven men have Greek names. They are Greek Jews. Now remember, it was the Greek widows that were being overlooked. And so those who had the problem have become part of the solution. 
You know, John, my predecessor, the senior pastor before me, he used to always say, get on the solution side of the problem. You see, it's easy to complain about something. It's harder, but better, to do something about it, to get on the solution side. And this is literally what the church has done in this instance. The Greek men have gone from the problem side, from complaining that their widow's needs were not being met, to the solution side, to being the ones who would sort it out for them and would hand out the food to them. And so what about you? Do you more naturally sit on the problem side or the solution side? It's not wrong to have a problem. It's not wrong to have a complaint. It's not wrong to raise issues. But are we also willing to get in the game, to be part of the solution? You know, I'll never forget, there was one occasion, I was sitting down on the front row before a a Sunday morning service, and I was sitting next to John when he was the uh, lead pastor at that stage. And right before the service, someone came down and they, they sat next to John and they said quite heatedly to him, no one cares about me. No one has called me or checked in on me in ages. And John very calmly listened to them and listened to them. And he eventually, very gently said to them, can I ask you a question? And they said, sure. He said, when was the last time you reached out to someone? Just tell me, when was the last time you called someone? And this person, to their credit, they said, yep, you're right. I need to be part of the solution. I need to be part of the change I want to see. I need to build the culture I'd like to be a part of. And they actually went on to get involved in ministry in some great ways. And this is a glimpse into what we see happening here in Acts chapter 6. Those with the problem become part of the solution. And so this proposal from the apostles is incredibly wise. It gets more people involved in ministry. It meets the needs of the widows. It moves those from complaining to contributing. And it enables them to give their attention to what God has called them to do. Prayer and the ministry of the word. And so what does this lead to? What's the payoff? Well, this brings us to the final scene and the final verse in this passage. Look at verse 7 with me. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Because the apostles kept the main thing the main thing, because they refused to be distracted from their purpose, diverted from their priority, the result was not only did the complaint get resolved, but the word of God spread. More people were added to the church and even the priests began to believe. Those whose whole way of life was tied into the temple, the ritual, the sacrificial system, even they left all that behind to become obedient to Christ. This is the word of God at work. And you see, this whole story illustrates a very important principle for us. And it's very simply this, the church lives by the word of God. The church lives by the word of God. I mean, the apostles, they could have devoted themselves to lots of different things. They could have started a healing ministry. They could have gone on a signs and wonders tour. They could have started a homeless shelter. And none of those things are particularly bad things. Most of them are happening. But they're not what the apostles devoted themselves to. 
They're not what they gave themselves to. They're not what they said, this and this alone is what we must do. No, their priority was prayer and the ministry of the word because the church lives by the word of God. Jesus once said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the apostles took Jesus at his word and they devoted themselves to God's word. I love the way Simon Manchester puts it, a a minister in Sydney. He says, a person may be nobody special in the world, but if they love the word and if they live the word, they are likely to grow into a spiritual oak. A person may be a heavyweight in the world, but if they neglect the word, they will increasingly be a spiritual sapling, if not a twig. A church may have no fancy building or music or even a great crowd, but if it loves to hear the word and do the word, it is almost certainly a church with some life and some heat and some impact. Whereas a church may have all the signs of success, a very expensive building, great music, but if it has no respect for God's word, it becomes in the end just a facade. It becomes like that fig tree that Jesus cursed because it was all leaves with no fruit. And we don't want to be all leaves with no fruit. We want to go deep into the word so the word goes deep into us and so that then fruit can grow from within us. And be a church that is grounded on God's word in our Sunday services, in our growth groups, in our ministries, in our one-to-one catch-ups, in our meetings. We want this to be true of you during the week, to open up the word if you're a parent with your children, with your friends, with your family members, We want to be a church grounded in the Bible. But what we also see from this story is that truth without love is inauthentic and incomplete. And so we also want to be a church that is filled by and marked by loving relationships. We want to be a church that cares for the least of these, for the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the forgotten. I mean, clearly the early church were taking care of their widows and we want to do likewise. We want to be committed to biblical conviction and Christ-like compassion. But to do this well, we need you. We need more than just a few who are devoted to the ministry of the word. We need the many who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom. We need many who love Jesus and want to serve his people. Many who are willing to step up and to get involved. Many who are willing to get on the solution side. Many who are willing to use their time, their talents, their gifts for the good of others. And so that more people might become part of God's family and find life in Jesus forever. This is a life worth living. This is a cause worth giving ourselves to, devoting ourselves to. And so as we close, let me just ask you this. What are you devoted to? What's on the the bullet points on your list of priorities? Maybe today is the day to shift some things around. To put God once again at the top and at the center of your heart, your life, and your family. And if we do that together, imagine what God might do in and through us. Let me pray.
Father, thank you that you have given us your word, that you have sent us your son, and that you have poured out your spirit. We have everything we need to know you, to belong to you, and to be used by you. So Lord, where we have got our priorities out of order, where some things have been mixed up and, and the good has, become, has been put in the place of the best, Lord, we once again want to place you at the top and at the center of our lives, of our church, for the good of others and the glory of your name. And so Lord, do a work in and among us right now by your spirit so that we might become the people in the church that you've called us and created us to be. And we pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to pray or to process with someone, we have a prayer corner that's available just over there after the service and you'd be more than welcome to head over there. But would you stand now for this blessing from God's word before we sing together from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for full restoration. Encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen.